Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Every week, there is a different smelly bomb coming out, and that is where we are. It's almost like if you think about the public debate here like a water supply, it's not clean water. It's not like this is a fact-based discussion anymore. There are brown bits in there. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm here with Peter Lewis, who's the Executive Director at Essential, and we're discussing this fortnight's Guardian Essential poll. Hello, Peter. Hey, Paul. The Essential poll this week found those intending to vote no to the referendum to put an Indigenous voice in the Constitution outnumbering supporters, and that's a first for the Essential poll. Essential also started new qualitative work on the reasons behind people's voting intention on the referendum, and there are some very juicy figures about just how cheesed off Australians are about the cost of living. So let's get into it, uh, perhaps starting with the voice, Peter. What did you find in this survey and why is it a first for the essential? Well, it is a bit of a watershed for our monitoring of attitudes towards the upcoming referendum. Um, Before we get into the numbers, just really want to reinforce this is not a scoreboard, it's a temperature check, but it does sort of chart, I think, a few really concerning trends for the Yes campaign. Over the last month, the support profile has shifted from 47 support, 43 opposed, 10 undecided, to 47 opposed 43 support and 10 undecided. So that's altogether an eight-point shift in net positive, negative. It's effectively, if we took out the undecideds, which we don't, it's gone from 52-48 to 48-52. For context, at the start of the year, it was at 65-35. So something, either something or some things are going on and they should be of concern for any listeners that do think that there is a really important vote coming up at the end of the year that will probably define us as a nation for some time to come. And were there particular uh, demographics where the uh, yes vote had fallen away to result in, in no taking the lead? Yeah, look, it's like in all the areas where the vote has been weak amongst male, amongst older people and amongst conservative voters, it's been falling away. There was a time, though, when we had the progressive yes at around mid to high 80s of Greens and mid 60s. They've both dropped off as well, Labor and Green voters. So it's across the board. Obviously, I've declared previously we're a proud campaign partner for Yes 23 and we're doing a lot of work on the on the ground. And my two bobs worth is that it's really exposing some really significant structural flaws in the way that we do our politics. Um, can I just give you one example, which is my yeah, far away. cooker in his underpants example? So 
One of the things we've been doing with Yes23 are running these amazing community town hall events, a one-hour town hall with a great host and a panel of both local leaders and Indigenous people. And we went down to Wodonga and we did a terrific event with Helen Haynes and the Voices for Indi crew a week ago. And there were 400 people in the room, 600 people online, all feeding in their, their feels and their views. Terrific. 48 hours before the event. One of the border cookers went on Telegram and said, we're going to raid the event. That all of a sudden meant that we had to get in security. Um, We had feds came up from Melbourne with the minister. Everyone had to be checked for their ID on the way in. Nothing happened. But the media locally before the event was disruptions expected at event. And the media afterwards was no disruptions at event. But it was like one cooker in his undies had had more impact on the narrative on this area than a thousand citizens who were embracing the yes case. So that is not an excuse for things that may or may not be going right or wrong in the broader campaign, but it does feel to me that we're in a a world where we've got a very divisive and loud no campaign that is just pushing out something new every day of the week. On the other side, you've got this attempt to build a consensus, and that ain't the modus operandi for either our digital platforms or our polarised media. And again, I'm not trying to make excuses for a campaign that I'm really proud to be part of, but it is really, really hard. And the only way to get around this, I think, is for organisations, the hundreds of organisations that have said they're on board to actually do more than just say we're on board, but actually use their networks of goodwill to build understanding. There are a few other uh, concerning results, not just at the nationwide level, but also in a referendum needing to get a majority of states as well as a majority of voters, that the state breakdown was also concerning. What did you find there? Um, So the only state where it looks at the moment, again, not a horse race, where the voices ahead is in Victoria. So listeners need to know that you've got to win four out of the six states. Now, that is not to catastrophize because I don't think any of those are actually with no above 50, but it is very much ahead in terms of declared vote. Um, The other point to note is that hard no is a higher number than hard yes. If you want to play around with this and make yourself miserable at home, you can go to essentialreport.com.au. So yeah, all the works ahead of the Yes campaign, I think they know that. I think that the networks are starting to build out, but I think it's fair to say if the referendum was this week, it would probably not get up. And if it is left to its own devices, i.e. it is just a bunch of memes on Facebook and TV ads and media fights, I think it's in trouble. Now, I saw some reporting that the Yes campaign polling and Labor polling was suggesting that the decline in support isn't that bad because there are a lot of soft no's. I didn't find that a very compelling case, to be honest, because if you've gone from 65-35 supporting the voice to 50-50 or lower, that means, you know, one in seven Australians 
in the last year have changed from intending to vote yes to intending to vote no. So I didn't think it was any kind of reassurance to point to the soft no's and say, well, that pile's very high. But then looking at these results, you can't even say that here because the hard no's are outnumbering hard yes, 38 to 31, and there are fewer soft no's, 9%, than there are soft yeses at 12. So it's starting to look like a, a slide all the way across rather than just people flipping between soft yes and soft no. The, the only piece where I would, if I'm the yes campaign, take a little bit of heart is amongst the no's, we asked people that were intending to vote no what was their key driver, whether it was that it's not going to make a real difference to the lives of ordinary Indigenous Australians or it will give them special rights and privileges. And it's the progressive no argument. I'm not saying the sovereignty argument like the hardcore capital P progressive no, but It seems to me that if you say that there are no votes on the table to be convinced, you've got two ways of going. You can try to convince people that are predisposed to think that this is giving special rights, that it's no big deal. I think that's a really heavy lift. But the idea of this will make a practical difference or at the very least be the part of a journey that ends up with better conditions, you know, truth treaty, um, that's still there to be won. I think one of the difficulties out of last week's noise in Parliament, which in my column I have equated with letting off a certain body function on the part of the opposition leader, which I'm also very happy to unpack, is that Labor's been fighting for yes by saying, but it won't lead to treaty. Whereas I think these numbers suggest that there are a lot of voters who, if they thought there was a bigger story, would be more likely to come on board. So I think, you know, in a way you can tell people it's not going to be a big deal or it's going to make a real change, but you can't really do both. And at some point that's got to crystallise. So the other thing I would say is I think... A national debate focused on reassuring people it will make a difference is a very different national debate to one saying, why are you giving special rights to these people? And if you thought, which is the more productive way of moving the nation forward, definitely trying to reach out to progressive no seems to me to be a better return on investment. Now, you've started doing qualitative work. We've been yes. sizzling this for a few weeks. Uh, you know, you've been telling me, oh, we can only look at the numbers. We can't We can't necessarily tell you the why, so stop asking pesky questions. <laughs> but you have asked the pesky questions in, in yeah. focus groups. How okay. are you doing this work? So, th- so what we're doing, we're testing this new idea that, you know, it's fine to get the numbers, but it always becomes a what do you think. So what we were doing here was saying, let's replicate the questions in the Essential Report in a what we call an online focus group. Now, for people that don't work in research, most of your listeners, imagine an online discussion board that only people that are invited into can go into, and they are asked a series of questions over a number of days. It's almost like an online discussion. They put in their their views and they can see what other people said and respond to them. So what was really interesting in this was we did ask people both how they intended to vote on The Voice, but also their reasons. I guess the standout for me was some of the reasons driving no voters and these came up, it's almost like Pauline Hanson's speaking points. So some of this disinformation is really landing. So we had one person that was saying, the reason I'm voting no is that they're going to be handing out free tickets to sporting events and shows. Another one saying you're going to have to pay to go to the beach. 
which I think was a WA one, which might be a conflation with what looks like the former cultural heritage laws that were going in there. But there was just very much on people that were saying they were intended to vote, no, a lot of the arguments don't stand up. Now, disinformation is is a tricky business because it can be seeded and driven really easily, but it's not just saying, no, you're wrong because then you're telling me I'm dumb. So it creates real challenges. But just to see that come out, so not just anecdotal, but when you've got, okay, well, there's the numbers and this is what people are saying off the back of it. It just gives us a little bit more texture and really makes me stronger that we have, through the conduct of this debate over the last few months, really since Christmas, since, you know, if you look at the sequence, we had um, Pauline Hanson going in early, throwing a whole lot of muck. Then we had the radical progressive no on Invasion Day saying, we don't want it. You also and then had you the, the Nationals uh, locking in against it before, before much following more Hansen, in detail. Yeah. And then you had Dutton coming in saying, where's the detail, where's the detail, where's the detail? Now, every week there is a different smelly bomb coming out. And that is where we are. It's almost like if you think about the public debate here like a water supply, it's not clean water. It's not like this is a fact-based discussion anymore. There are brown bits in there. I'm going silly on this now. Can I give you um my tortured metaphor of the week as well? Or sure, fire away. So one of the charges last week, and I think this is the other bit that I write in my column this week, right? So The other thing the opposition's trying to do is say that Anthony Albanese can't focus on cost of living and push the voice forward. Um, Interestingly, they do this by every question time just asking questions about the voice to prove that Anthony Albanese and Labor, who spend every question time discussing what they're doing for the cost of living, aren't serious about the cost of living. And they come up with a different attack every week to keep the voice loud and noisy. But underneath that, what are they really doing? They're trying to unleash Australia's grand tradition of downward envy. They're implying that if you're under financial stress through the cost of living, then you should not be giving up any power to your Indigenous brothers and sisters, which seems pretty insidious, but just to indulge me for a moment. So I thought walk and chew gum is an interesting metaphor. So I went online, as I do, and researched the origins of walk and chew gum. And the first attribution of this is Lyndon Bain Johnson describing future US President Gerald Ford as being so dumb he can't fart and chew gum. But the media sanitized it because it was regarded as obscene. Too rude at the time. So I don't know. It just feels like that's kind of what Dutton's doing at the moment. He's farting and chewing gum. He's fouling the air and he's chewing the cut as if there's nothing to see here. So that's the end. I won't indulge listeners anymore. Although there are a few more jokes that I managed to get through the news desk. Thank you very much, Georgia. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in the first half of the year, uh, cost of living was the main attack in question time. The first question every day was the $275 power bill promise and then, you know, interest rate rises and, and, and inflation. But there has been a bit of a turning point now as we come into the home stretch. Um, the Reserve Bank has had rates on hold the last two months and 
Last week when rates weren't hiked on Tuesday, it was like, oh, okay, the first question in question time is some garbled mess that conflates cost of living and the voice in one question, and then the next five or so questions are all about, um, you know, how voice is a curtain raiser to treaty and trying to conflate the voice with other issues or, or muddy the waters, yeah. But they've also had a crack at the voice going to be able to affect interest rates, change Australia Day, oh, what else, you know, like where does it stop now? On one level, I think just saying, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not, has the perverse consequence of then reinforcing that it's not really going to do much at all. So it is a really interesting spot to hit. None of this should take away from the fact that people are feeling the cost of living pressures, and we've got some other stats on that, which we can talk about in a sec, Paul. But the, the bit that strikes me is that a lot of mortgages appear to be coming off fixed rates, and that's likely to be a moment where there will be an amplification of impact, and that seems to be coming about the same time as the voice vote. Yeah, I, uh, so turning to those results now, I mean, if there's an increase in people saying country going in the wrong direction and there's also a lot of concern about the cost of living. Um, now, cost of living was asked in a list of policy areas and people were asked how the Albanese was going and they were offered excellent, above average, average, below average or poor, uh, what did people say about the handling of the cost of living? Look, they're marking it pretty low. So this is our classic five-point spread, right? So on cost of living, you've got, well, the very well is so small it's not coming up on my computer, 2% plus 7% average, so above average. So 9% in the positive column, 21% in the neutral column, and the rest, which is 70% of people saying negative 44, poor, 26 below average, which is almost as bad as their ratings on housing affordability and not much better than their ratings on climate change. What's really interesting on all these, and again, people can log on and have a look at this in all their glory at essentialreport.com.au, none of this at this stage is having any bearing on primary vote or 2PP, which is still very strong for Labor, which is kind of like, there's these two things happening at the same time, aren't there? There's the people watching the performance of the government on its own, where it's not setting the world on fire, and then it's watching it in relation to the opposition, where they kind of remember what it was before and they rate it higher. So... I think it's a very reasonable and rational thing for people to do, to be pissed off about inflation, to be pissed off about rent rises and interest rate rises, but then... The opposition have no alternative cost of living policies yet, really, to win any of those votes. I think it's called capitalism, isn't it? Well, their policies are to argue somehow that the cap on electricity prices has made the crisis worse because, you know, the marginal gas project in three years' time won't happen or some ridiculous thing like that. They voted against the electricity price relief. Um, Last week, they sensibly didn't get in the way of the income support relief when their amendment was rejected. But the the centrepiece of the budget reply was gambling ads and an alternative income support measure that they've ended up not being able to enact. Like, it's just, why would anyone, no matter how pissed off they are, feel that there's a better solution on the table? Like, it's not clear to me. The other factor, of course, is we're deep in winter 
and incumbents never do well in winter. It's why elections are never held in winter. Elections are held in spring. Then we go. It's like, so, so there have been some 24 degree days in, in well, Brisbane. Well, I know. And Sydney I know there's been a bit of heat <laughs> in there. For a climate but, election. <laughs> but, um, and maybe that talks to the climate numbers there because they're not great at all either. What is it? Um, 13% positive, 42% negative, 46% average. But it is true. Like winter is a really hard time politically because it's not a great, it's not the best time of year. Numbers go up for incumbents over summer because we're not thinking about politics or unless you've gone to Hawaii and forgot to take the hose with you, I guess. But where are we? We're about, we're in the second year now of a three-year term. The honeymoon, to the extent there was a honeymoon, if you were to look at the 2PP numbers and the primaries, you'd say still good shape but you'd look at these sort of specific issues and say that, and I think the government knows this, that there's work to be done in all these areas, which with um, national conference coming up in a week or two will be an opportunity, I think, for them in some of these policy debates to reset a little bit. Uh, and just to look at a few particular policy areas, mm-hmm. uh, we found that support for a ban on gambling ads is still high. Yeah, it's always been high. That has not necessarily led to the laws being changed. We have uh, three options in front of people. Um, Let it rip. Sports advertising should be allowed at all times, even during sports events, 16%. Sports betting should be allowed, but not during events, like no live betting, 25% and 43% get rid of it altogether, 16% unsure. Now, obviously, the politics of this is difficult because the organisations losing out on any advertising money are an industry which you are very close to, Paul, who have a history of thinking they've got a veto on things that act against their interests, notwithstanding the fact that Guardian does not accept sports betting advertising anymore. So kudos to you. Yes, we're still waiting on the government's response to that committee report calling for the total ban, and yet 43% is the most popular wanting the total ban, yeah. And just lastly, you asked about drug decriminalisation, and I was quite impressed that across the board a series of soft to hard drugs, party drugs, more than one in four people thinks that they should be treated in a similar way to tobacco and alcohol. I was impressed people knew what ketamine is anyway. I need to get out more, obviously. This is off the back of New South Wales Greens MP Kate Fairman calling for, in the wake of a whole lot of shootings and drug-related shootings for the decriminalisation of cocaine. Um, So, yeah, let's go through these. Marijuana agreement on the formulation we said should be regulated and taxed by the government in a similar way to tobacco and alcohol, which would mean not open slather, obviously, but not criminalise. So 50% support marijuana, 33% LSD and magic mushies, um, 29% ecstasy MDMA, 29% cocaine, 28 heroin opiates and 27 special K. Now, I don't think that's people saying let's have a party. I think that's about people talking about harm minimisation and the the realisation that with criminalisation becomes a honeypot for criminals. I I should also make the point that apart from marijuana, there was more opposed to decriminalisation than supporting. So just going down that list, it's like closer to 50%. So it's not like people 
as a mass are saying, do this. I'd be very interested on the ages of this as well. I'm assuming. There you go. It's not that different in age, although a little bit younger people, apart from marijuana, which is more for those of us in the middle stages of our life. So it's still more popular to keep them illegal, but the point is it doesn't seem to be completely unpalatable to consider decriminalisation. Well, you can see where the Greens are coming from. Some some momentum, yeah. Well, for a 10 to 15% party, you're running on an issue where you've got 50 to 35%. I think for a, a minor party, it's an issue that they can run on. For a majority party, it's a lot harder. Fair enough. Well, we'll watch out to see uh, whether Anthony Albanese calls a double dissolution on housing, which might see some legalised cannabis senators elected alongside some green senators. (laughs) I was interested in how you were going to wind all that up, Paul, but that was very good. (laughs) All right. I think that's all we have time for, but uh, thank you very much for joining us this week, Peter. Thanks for your indulgence. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening. And please watch out for another episode of Australian Politics on Saturday.